When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Yes, yes. Welcome into another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network, live on podcast from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. Ryan Kelly and his incredible staff at the HomeLoanExpert.com, the sponsor of our studios. Ryan's putting together a trip for our listeners to go down to the Missouri-Kentucky game on October 27th and buses. A whole thing. Uh, A great guy, a person I recommend doing business with. Don't even think twice about it. Charitable, first class, smart, hardworking. He's online at thehomeloanexpert.com. For a refi, for buying a home, it's Ryan Kelly, our studio sponsor here on the Tim McKernan Show. And it is questions from the audience. I'm fresh off of, this is how I work. Um, I'm fresh off of, well, I did TMA from 7 to 10. Then came into the podcast studio and starting at 10.15, it's now 12.04 in St. Louis, uh, which means nothing to you because who knows what day you're listening to this, but it's September 19th, 2018. Uh, and just did an interview with Graham Amsinger of the MLB Network. I loved the interview, so my synapses are firing, not nearly as much as, uh, you know, girl and girl play uh, makes them fire, but, but nonetheless... Uh, I love a good interview. I love I love a good conversation in general, whether I'm recording with somebody or whether I'm just bullshitting at a bar or wherever. Uh, I love it. And that Greg Amsinger thing, uh, if you are listening to this near September 19th, it will be out on Monday. And just career discussion, broadcasting discussion, if you have or if you yourself have a child or you yourself are interested in getting into broadcasting, I would really recommend that. Um just because we bullshit about that. And then also, of course, the Cardinals and his big rant on July 31st, the trade deadline, where he said, you're going to trade Tommy Pham, trade Matt Carpenter, trade Marcelo Zuna, trade Yadier Molina. That became a whole thing. So we talked about the Cardinals. Anyway, loved the interview. Before we started the interview, uh, who, of course, is presented by Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies, Mark Hanna at evergreenstl.com. Uh, before we started the interview, I posted on the TMA fan page, I said, hey, we're going to do questions from the audience today, uh, and I am now opening up the page. God only knows what I'm going to see, but I didn't look at it the entire time. And I said, it's QFTA day, questions from the audience. Ask me something naughty, and I'll tell you why you're a bad boy, and then I'll answer it. See, this is the kind of stuff you're missing if you're not a member of the TMA fan page. Uh, Submit your questions here or for your privacy via email, teamrecurrent at insidestl.com. And so... A bunch of questions were coming in, but I didn't want to look at them while I was in the middle of the interview with Greg because I was locked in on the interview and I didn't want to get distracted. 
And so now I'm looking at them for the very first time, and I will answer them. And I have no idea what I'm about to see. I might see something that puts me on tilt, and then you'll watch my emotional sway go from a high to a low, and it'll be fascinating because it'll be captured all on podcast. I have no idea. So let's start right here. How excited are you for the Ryder Cup this year? How does your getting more involved with golf and golf culture over the past couple of years impact your excitement? Assuming you're excited about this year, did you care about it at all in the past? Uh, I am excited about it. If it were in the U.S., I'd be more excited just from a time standpoint, although I do get up pretty early on the weekends, despite the fact that it's my only couple of days to sleep in with getting up early throughout the week to do the morning show. Um, but I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it uh, certainly way more than ever in my life, actually. Uh, because not only have I uh, gotten back into playing, but I've gotten into, as you mentioned, that's a good word for it, Patrick, uh, the culture of the game and the personality surrounding it. I think that No Limit, no Laying Up podcast has helped kind of contribute to that. Uh, they're certainly fired up about it. I'm excited about it. Um, I also recognize that me like starting to talk about the Ryder Cup on TMA, for example, uh, I'm going to uh, reach maybe 3% of the audience. This will be the weekend right before what ideally the Cardinals are playing in the playoffs or wild card game or whatever it'll be. So unless something significant happens like the 99 comeback and the American team and the wives all over the green pissing off the European team, I don't know how much time we'll spend on it. Kind of like when I would be big into poker. Uh, even though I was into it, I know most of the people don't care about it. So I try to give the people what the majority of the people um, are at least interested in, um, or in the case of the stag industry, have to publicly act like they're not interested in, all while um, scanning the updates on Pornhub. Uh, Joe asks this question. I really enjoy the hour-long segments. When you made that move, how much of it was because you thought it made for better content, and how much because it turned the radio show into three-hour-long podcasts, and you saw that as the future? That is a great question from somebody who I've never, I don't think, seen post on the fan page. Um, if I'm not mistaken, and it'd be better almost if Buck Swope were in here to answer the question, I think we were taking a break an hour, so therefore there would be six segments, um, before Dan Marshall was doing the, the 590, the man, 1380, the woman thing, I think, and I could be wrong on this because we're going back more than five years, we're going back five and a half years here, um, and then my contract... Uh, dictated, which is really weird. Uh, another thing that I look back on my career and I go, what was I doing there? But uh, my contract dictated either he had to pay me a large amount of money. I mean, money that right now, five and a half years later, I'd go, wow, that's a huge amount of money. Um, or I had to be able to stay on the air, I think for 120 days. And since he didn't want to pay the money, and I wish he would have, because um, then he could have just said, you're gone. We, like, blew in the wind for four months, except he was trying to get me to go on tilt and then say something where he could say, I breached my agreement, and then he would then try and get out of the contract and, and be able to put Bubba the Love Sponge on because, obviously, that was going to be really successful. And so, uh, therefore... Because every, not every, but maybe two or three times a week while we were playing out the final 120 days, all while setting up a new station that I knew would put him out of business, uh, I just was like, you know, we know what we do. What we do is we, we improv, drive some people up the wall that we improv, you know, but whatever, it's what we do. Uh, 
And, and by some people, I mean more some people in the industry, not necessarily the audience, because the audience knows what they're getting at this point. So why would you tune into something you know you're not going to like? So why mess with the brakes? We, we prefer to flow. And so let's just flow. Let's let it be awful. And so it happened organically. I'd love to say it was a strategy. But then when I met a number of listeners because we had what I didn't anticipate being, but wound up being a huge turnout for the 10th anniversary of Inside STL Party at uh, AB and then uh, at uh, Truman's Place uh, for the after party in uh, August of 2015. And I met so many listeners. And it really at that point was the first time that it drove home not only how the show had grown as far as an audience goes, but also how the show had grown with younger people. And I'm not talking about like teens, but certainly, you know, at that point, I'm 39, 38. Um, and like most of the people I was meeting at those two parties were younger than me. And so I just became curious as to how younger people, especially, were finding our show, especially when it's on AM radio. And, you know, not unanimously, but certainly the vast majority go, yeah, it, well, it's like a podcast. It's like three podcasts. It's, and I'm going, really? I mean, like, I listen to podcasts, but I'm surprised that it had, you know, become such a part of the listening experience for our audience. And so I stumbled into it. We stumbled into it, but uh, it was not a strategy. Great observation on your part, Joe. Uh, but uh, that is not, uh, that was not a plan, but I certainly, it wound up working out. There's no question about it. Uh, I enjoyed the podcast with Andy Van Slyke. He is our guest this week as I speak, um, uh, presented by Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies online at evergreenstl.com. Let him organize your finances for you and you will get on the right track. Uh, Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies, a person I wish I knew 20 years ago, because had I done that, had I known him, I would be in better shape financially. It's that simple. It's that sad on my part, but it's that simple. Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies and his number is 314-889-0503, 314-889-0503, or check him out online at evergreenstl.com. Mark helps everyday people, and he does so every day, and he does it by building a strategy to get you to your financial goals. You might think, I mean, Mark's going to go, oh, you need to start saving this, and you're like, I still want to go out and do this, or I want to spend money on travel. That's fine. It's budgeted. But then you can have a plan, and he organizes it for you. And oh, what that does. I'm telling you, because I'm in the middle of all this stuff right now, um, I, I swear to you, I wish I would have met him 20 years ago because I would be in a different place. And it's, if anything, it's, it's, it's the biggest regret I have. And it's not even a sweat. Mark Hanna, Evergreen Wealth Strategies, let him do for you what I know he can do, which is put you on the right path and put your mind at ease. 314-889-0503 or online at evergreenstl.com. Mark Hanna is his name and he's a great guy and he's really good at what he does. All right. So the question was, I enjoyed the podcast with Andy Van Slyke and found most interesting that he lamented his conflict with Tony LaRussa. In that vein, a few questions. What is the most lingering bad blood sports feud in St. Louis that we may or may not know about? Uh, I assume Ozzy Smith versus Tony LaRussa. Number two, uh, have you had a professional feud slash conflict that has been patched up or not that you can talk about? I think you thought you had one with Savard, but perhaps he didn't see it as bad. Great question. So far, and I haven't even looked past the questions I've, I've, I've read. God knows what I'm going to read. Um, these are two great questions. Um, 
the questions, unfortunately, um, would fall under the category of um, going outside the locker room, so to speak. Um, so with regard to the first one, I am I would I would certainly answer the Tony LaRusa Ozzy Smith one. So much so, by the way, that when I had Ozzy Smith in here as a guest about whatever it was a month ago, I guess, I didn't even bring it up. First off, I know he gets asked about it all the time. And secondly, I felt like we were, you know, having such a good conversation that I know that that had a chance to blow up the conversation. And then finally, because he's been asked about it so much, because it's been 20 plus years at this point, you know, unless he's like, you know what, I'm glad you asked because Tony and I just had a chance to sit down and talk, which if it hadn't happened for 20 plus years, the odds, I felt like the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. I don't know what the root of that is. I believe Tony has told me before, because I feel like we discussed it one time at spring training when we were uh, away from the ballpark, um, that he tried. Uh, but you heard Andy Vance like talk about that he believes that he, Vince Coleman, and Ozzy Smith, and for whatever reason, Willie McGee didn't fall, Willie McGee didn't fall under the umbrella. All these uh, Whitey Herzog players, Tony didn't treat well. I don't know what he... what. He didn't go into specifics, but that's why he was so pissed when he was doing radio in St. Louis after he retired, after being cut in spring training, uh, or getting hurt, I guess, in spring training, which led to him not making the roster. So I would say the obvious one is is that, um, I, you know, here's the thing. With most of the time, there are exceptions. Most of the time, people, in my experience— Again, I know there are exceptions, so you can email me all day about the exceptions. I'm aware of the exceptions, but I'm making a statement based on my experience, and I think you would find this as well, although the odds are most of you listening don't have a biz, don't have a career that's in the public eye, and for the record, I am big-time jealous of you for that. But most of the time, the people who are successful in a business in the public eye um, are fulfilled personally, professionally, and astute enough and disciplined enough to not pop off about somebody else in the industry. In part, I think, because the juice isn't worth the squeeze, which is one of the things I live by, the girl next door, 2004, Alicia Cuthbert, Timothy Oliphant. Uh, and then also from my standpoint, when it comes to like broadcasting, you you just don't really want to give somebody the attention because like Howard Stern's not going to like start bitching about our show. If he did, I'd talk about it, but he's not going to punch down. And so from that standpoint, I'm just not interested in engaging with, with any of that stuff. And I think that stuff used to go on way more than it does now. Like, for example, fun fact for no and tell, my mind just gets triggered in, in, uh, with memories, and, and sometimes they'll happen when the microphone's in front of me, and then sometimes they don't, and I go, God bless America, I wish I would remember this. Rizzuto, who was a recent guest also on the show, um, Rizzuto and I, I think I texted with Rizzuto more over the last, like, week than anybody, um, and he hosts, of course, the Rizzuto Show on 105.7 The Point. I think it's fair to say, I think the metrics would back it up, that it's the most popular show in St. Louis, certainly most popular morning show. Um, and I think if this were 20 years ago, 
even though we are on AM and we don't get, uh, we're not, we're not, we are not subscribers to, uh, what is the service now? It's Nielsen used to be Arbitron because we're in the same arena and doing the same thing. And I guess reaching for the same people, there would be like an automatic animosity, even though you'd go, you probably, if you hung out, you'd get along probably, um, that, that that's not even like on the on the table. Like we're just te- we're not texting about radio. We're bullshitting about stuff. Uh, as a matter of fact, on this past Friday, he's like, "Dude, you should come down here. We're having this. Um, I don't even know. What it was I think it was called Ristoberfest at uh, at the brewery." I'm like, "Ah, oh, should have done that, you know." And bullshitting about our uh, our favorite. Uh, we've both dealt with some unfortunate off the air situations with listeners. And we'll use a euphemism there uh, recently, uh, big time, actually, in both of our cases. And so um, we, just, we just get along. First, the guy's just really just like a good, down-to-earth, cool guy who happens to be the host of this show that's really successful. Um, so he's incredibly likable. Um, but my point being that I think in in broadcasting in general, and this isn't limited to St. Louis, I've heard Stern interviewing, I think it was Stephen Colbert. And I think he said, or maybe Jimmy Kimmel. And he said, nah, deep down though, you don't like, you don't like Fallon. You don't like Colbert. And Jimmy's like, no, I mean, we just do, you know, there isn't, there isn't that tension. He goes, you're you're full of shit. I wanted to kill anybody who was in my time slot when I was coming up. And I, maybe my, I don't know. I, first off, I just don't think that way. I feel like we have our audience. It's a great thing. I love doing it. I feel lucky to be able to do it. If somebody said it's over today, I'd be like, fuck, that was great. Almost two decades in my hometown, fucking off. How, you know, sweet, you know, do whatever now. Um, and then secondly, the way that you keep score in this business publicly, I guess, are the ratings, but privately it's the revenue. And the reality is that data is not public. So, and you can't make it public. And so if you're comfortable with what that is for your show, it's just like, yeah, somebody else's show, unless they start taking dollars away, it's just like, oh, you do what you do. So we probably have a lot in common. I think my favorite interviews on the podcast more often than not are with other broadcasters. Like I just said about the Amsinger interview, because we have things in common. And, uh, and so, you know, regarding feuds, my thing with Steve Savard um, I think if we, if we, if Steve and I were to talk away from the microphones, I think, I think I could be wrong. Uh, he would say that he was bothered by it more than, um, he let on, but he's a professional and he didn't really care to get into it. I think he was probably surprised that I even brought it up. Um, but it was, it was a real thing, but I think what he was bothered by was different than what I was bothered by. I think what he was bothered by was, um, the fact that I was public with it. Speaking of professional, I was unprofessional. I, it is easily the most embarrassing thing that I look back on my career. And some of you might be listening and going, Oh wow. I can think of 30 other things that were incredibly embarrassing that you did. And you might be right. But I'm telling you the thing that when I think about how I acted about that on the radio for a year, um, when I left KMOV, I'm talking about it as if people know what the hell I'm talking about. When I left KMOV um, and I acted like an ass about it, the reason I was upset is because people thought I got fired and I knew that I didn't get fired. 
but I also knew I couldn't raise hell about it because technically I had a one-year non-compete and KMOV was being kind enough to just let me do radio, couldn't do TV. Uh, and radio at that point was, you know, the source of my income and I couldn't risk it, but I still acted like an ass and said, I'm coming up, you know, in, in a year, I'll be able to tell you exactly what happened. And just like, like anybody gives a shit, like, fuck you for even thinking people cared. So then you make a big deal out of it. And then when the time comes to do it, I'm just like, you know what? I know deep down, Steve's a good guy. Still know that. No, he's a great guy. And I also know what went on for the thing that we never really got into in our interview there. We kind of talked around, um, so I get it. And if anything, I, I respect him as a person even more because of what he did, even though it, it went against what he told me uh, was, was going to happen. But the reality is, I did, it's not like I was like, oh, I'm loving working at KMOV. This is so sweet. You know, it was whatever. You know, it, it just it was, not, it was not challenging. It was not creatively fascinating. You have two minutes to do a sports cast. You can't really step outside the lines or else some old woman's going to call in and threaten to lead a boycott if you say anything that she deems to be offensive, uh, all while she's saying things that are completely offensive in order to justify her being offended, which is another fascinating dichotomy, but I digress. So all of this stuff, you know, that that was more of we hadn't talked. And I remember Mike Claiborne going, he goes, you know what, man, I'm going to get you guys together one night. And this is like 2006. And you guys are going to talk and it's going to be in the past. I go, yeah, you're probably right because it's really not that big of a deal. So I get what you're saying. I get what you're asking. Um, my thought on it is when it comes down to it, I just try to keep that kind of stuff internal. The only time that I feel like I have gone outside of that, and maybe there are exceptions in recent history since operating a business, let me put it that way, since 2010 or maybe even more recently 2013, because now I understand the downside element of, of getting into public bullshit is when Dan Caesar of the Post-Dispatch will quote Dan Marshall and Dan Marshall is saying something that's just flat out. If he's saying I'm an ass or whatever, that's like, okay, fine. You know, if people want to believe Dan Marshall over me, you know, Godspeed, they're probably not going to be the people I would be associating with anyway. Um, so fine, you know, and that's, and he has a right to pop off. But if somebody passes off a fact that I know is false, that is when I get involved. But also the source of the fact passing off that's bullshit has to be a credible source. And I think at this point in the market, a lot of people are aware of, you know, who you can buy into and who you know better than to buy into. And so from that standpoint, I just try to not engage and focus on the show that we have that we're lucky enough to have and my family. And that's it. And that's that's where I personally am. But regarding a feud, the thing with Steve Savard you ask about is something that when I think about it and for whatever, I, for whatever reason within the last 48 hours, I don't know why it came up that I was thinking about it. I seriously, I cringe when I think about how I acted. Cringe. And it also shows me like how much I've, I don't know if you would call it matured, but certainly changed in the last 11, 12 years. Um, because I absolutely cringe. I absolutely cringe. And thank God, by the way, there was no Twitter or Facebook because then the words would be like still there and I would be acting like a complete, you know, total jack off. Uh, and it's just, it was awful. I mean, like I said, I've, I listened to old morning grind tapes and I'm going, how in the hell did Martin Kilcoin and Jim Hayes put up with that? Uh, I sound like, I sounded like I was I had like, I was snorting five rails before each show. Uh, 
let's see. Brett Hall. I'm now I'm scrolling down back to the questions. Brett Hall, Mike Keenan, that's a good one. Uh, somebody asked, why did Andy Van Slyke wear sunglasses during his interview? I said at the end of it, because um, I wanted to address that, he, it was prescription. He didn't know it was going to be on TV so or the, the video thing. So he's like, oh, people think I'm going to be wearing sunglasses. He has to wear glasses. So that's what that was all about. But I... Uh, I get that. Uh, let's see. The Prod Joe rivalry, uh, Prod Joe Iggy rivalry, ongoing kerfuffle is entertaining. How intense is it and how did it start? Now, this is good because it actually is a segue, and you will see if you remember the TMA fan page that I'm not making this up. This is organic. I'm scrolling as we go. It goes back to a fantasy baseball dispute, which is just so dumb, but it's real. That is really what it is. And I don't even know what it is. Um, I guess Iggy was winning and didn't, and texted Joe what the tie Joe said he thought it was one thing or said, I don't know, check the rules or something like that. And then Iggy did one thing. And then I think it was uh, the non-gays team then came back and beat Iggy. And Iggy went on the radio and bitched about it. And so for Joe... That is the moment that he could not possibly have a rapport with Iggy. Now, I think when they worked together on our show in 2013, Iggy irritated Joe. I don't think Joe irritated Iggy. If he did, Iggy didn't vocalize it to me, but he knew that Joe was kind of, you know, our guy. And so even if he, it wouldn't be wise to bitch, because that's the thing about the group, you know, with, with very few exceptions, uh, the group has just it's it's always gotten along and that's probably one of the reasons why it's been on the air for as long as it's been on the air um because it doesn't matter what outside influence the group is going to take care of the group and by that i mean the hosts and the producers board ops whatever the case might be and so if somebody started to cause shit in the room we wanted them out of the room but that's not iggy style anyway um so anyway i think that combined with joe not really liking when he was working with him and they were in that little booth so then Joe comes and does a, uh, a an appearance at a TMA Live. Iggy's there. Iggy comes up to shake his hand, thinking everything's totally cool. And then Joe goes, I'm not shaking your hand. And I'm like, what in the fuck is that about? But I got to tell you something. As dumb as I think the root of the issue is, if Joe really doesn't like him, I appreciate the fact that he doesn't act like he does and then motherfucks him. Uh, because Joe's in a different spot. You know, he doesn't work here, um, doesn't need to, to play nice with others anymore at the thing. So it would be totally, totally fake for no reason. Sometimes you have to navigate bullshit, you know, trust me. And I'm sure those of you listening, you know exactly what I'm talking You just got to navigate bullshit. But Joe hasn't even navigated anything. He doesn't work here. He hasn't worked here for five and a half years at this point. And I will say, when he was fired from KFNS in 2006... And I believe he told the general manager to go fuck himself, which many would consider to be insubordinate. And that general manager did and then fired him. If this is accurate and if I'm wrong, I'll let Joe set the record straight on the Pick 6 podcast. Uh, but uh, we later saw that GM, I don't know, like six, seven months later, Joe was with me and we were at a Blues game and he came up to shake our hands. I was still working there at the time, although aggressively trying to get out. Joe did not. I shook the gentleman's hand. Like I said, I was working there. Uh, and uh, Joe refused to shake his hand. And the guy kept going, really? Really? And Joe's like, no. And then just kept walking. I'm like, you know what? God bless him. Is it the way I would operate? 
I don't know. I'm mean, Joe's in a different spot because he wasn't working there at the time. But you know what? He is who he is. He doesn't really apologize for it. But that's also the thing that makes Iggy so great is he is who he is. You might think it's creepy, freaky, whatever, but hey, that's who he is, and you know that's what makes him and the Plowhawk and uh, and Joe, as far as people who have been on or are on the show, uh, what they are. Whether they are loved or hated, it's because they're just like, yeah, fuck it, this is who I am, and if you guys don't like it, great, I don't fucking care. This is who I am, this is what I think. God bless you. So that's the background uh, on producer Joe and Iggy. I hope that at some point that can be healed, but knowing producer Joe, I think Iggy would be willing to do it. Knowing producer Joe, I don't see it. I don't see it happening anytime soon. Uh, let's see. Uh, you operated the radio station in the beginning. Now you've mentioned that you don't. Who operates it now and why and how did the transition happen? These are really good questions today. And I'm not like even editing. Inevitably, one's going to come up and I'm going, I can't fucking answer that. Or that's a horrible question or fuck you for asking it. But we're not there yet. And I'm enjoying this. Thank you. And I'm not even scrolling past to see. I'm just answering in order. So uh, I'm glad I have a chance to answer this because I understand and I don't blame people for it because it's like a little periphery part of their entertainment driving to work or whatever. But for me, it's my life. And for those of us on the show, it's our careers. People still think I operate KFNS. And I guess in part because I did operate CBS Sports 920. But even then, Inside STL, which is the company I'm the majority uh, member of, uh, the managing member, that that we were renting that time. You know, I cut a check for all five days of programming at, at 920, what we called CBS Sports 920, from 2013, uh, almost five years, or excuse me, three years to the day of coming to KFNS. And, and even some of the people who work with me, I don't think know this. And I, and to me, it's the way that it should be, but I don't know, maybe I should have briefed everybody, but if I would have briefed everybody, they would have been freaking out. And I felt like this is my problem. I have both the upside, but because I have the upside, I also have the downside. That's the way that it works. And so because I was cutting a, a, a very large check, I'd, I'd still say this even, you know, Five years from now, if I'm in a different spot, it's always going to be a large amount of money, you know, um, and I think it probably surprised people if they knew what the amount was. I'm not going to go into what the amount was, but it was a large amount of money to rent that time at 920 from Burt Kaufman, who's a great guy, great guy, one of the most honorable people I've been lucky enough to meet in broadcasting since leaving school in 20 years. He's a good man, and I don't think you'll find too many people who will say otherwise. A tough negotiator. We certainly went back and forth on that, but that's that's professional. That's not personal, and that's fine. Uh, so Bert and I got the deal done. So not only are we cutting this big check to have the time, I made the mistake, my mistake, no one else's mistake. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a mistake in the moment. Now I look back on it and I call it a mistake of going, okay, we need to go out and hire uh, the best lineup we possibly can. And then that is going to lead to the most revenue. And in reality, that's not what happened. Uh, and I've learned that since. And... Um, the reality of the business, and I can only speak to, to the 920 business, is that the vast majority of the dollars were attached to the morning after. Not all, by any means, not all. Uh, but the, the, the majority, certainly. And I'm in a weird spot because it'd be the equivalent of, you know, John Kiowski, for example, runs uh, Hubbard. Becky Damian runs Entercom. Uh, when Emmis was operating here in St. Louis, John Beck ran Emmis. Uh, it'd be the equivalent of, even though those are monster radio uh, clusters, and that's what they're called, clusters. I'm not using a code word for clusterfuck uh, because they own all these stations. They're called clusters. Um, 
that'd be the equivalent of like John Beck getting done with his show and then operating the radio station, albeit, you know, bigger radio stations, certainly than the 920 and multiple. But it's a weird spot because you're on air, but you're also operating. But I did what I had to do. That wasn't because I wanted to do it. We had to do it. But I also was the guarantor on that. And so for this amount of money, which I will say over the course of the year was well into the six figures. That's as detailed as I'll go on it. Um, from inside STL to have this airtime, uh, my wife and I were the guarantors. Nobody else. But I, I mean, I also had the upside. I'm not bitching about it. I just didn't talk about it while it was going on. And this is a startup venture. And so there were there were there were times when my wife worked in the commercial traffic and billing department for Inside STL. Uh, and I obviously am hosting the show and I'm president of the company. And there were times where I'm just like, yeah, I mean, we can take out, we can touch our line of credit. You know, I didn't carry any debt, tried not to carry any debt. Uh, if I'm the guarantor, especially, uh, but, but I felt like since I was the guarantor, I'm robbing Peter to pay Paul. And so I'm not gonna, we, we're just not gonna pay ourselves this, this pay period. And that could go on for a couple of months. Uh, and that's a real thing. And I didn't run around talking about it. Just because I didn't feel like it was anybody's business, but also because the people who were working at 920, if they heard and I said that, yeah, you know, it's tight and I can't pay myself and Anna Marie, I can't pay Anna Marie. They'd go, oh, my God, we're going to go out of business. So as the leader, you know, if somebody would come and ask me, I would have been honest. Nobody was going to ask that. But as the leader, you do what you can to get it right. And so I did my best and we were, we became a profitable entity by operating 920. We were profitable. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the, uh, the profitability certainly, but I'm also very proud of the manner with which the people who worked there on and off the air conducted themselves. And I think, um, I think almost to a, a person who was a part of that, and I can think of a couple of exceptions um, but you're talking about, I don't know, 70 people over the course of those three years who either had a show there or worked there, um, that, that would say, yeah, that was a fun time and, you know, I was treated well and that was it. And if you weren't treated in your position perspective, well, I'm quite confident there was a reason for that. So very proud of that. However, I'm still cutting these big checks and, you know, analyzing the situation, I think that there was a thought process that we had nowhere else to go. And so, therefore, we're going to keep upping the asking price. And it got to a point where it, was, it wasn't that it was unsustainable. It just became, it was dumb because we were grinding and grinding and grinding to be able to barely make a small profit because I'm cutting this monster check each month to have the airtime. And it just, it's a shame, but that's, that's the reality. Uh, and it, none of this is personal, by the way. Uh, I think, I think if, uh, Bert were sitting here, I think he would agree with that. I'm sure maybe he would have a, a different perspective since, you know, we're negotiating from different positions, but it's business and Bert and I have a great relationship. I haven't been to that station in more than two years now. Uh, but I think the world of him, he's a great man, honorable man, good man, and it's just business. So I don't take the, a negotiation 
personally, as long as it's done honorably, and it was. Uh, and I respect that he's going, okay, you have nowhere else to go, so I'm going to be able to get this, and hey, God bless you, that's supply and demand. The, 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 the miscalculation, I suppose, is that we would have nowhere else to go, and we had multiple other options as things played out in 2016. And so uh, Randy Markell, who owns KFNS, uh, approached me about coming over to KFNS and bringing what we have at 920 over to KFNS and Randy being Randy and Randy is one of the most likable people you will ever meet. Uh, absolute character. Um, I do my impression of Randy to Randy, which is a weird thing to do, but I do it. And, uh, he at least, uh, puts up with my dipshittery. I really like the guy. Um, like I said, just a, a fascinating character. Met him, I think, in February-ish of 2016. And he said, bud, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I mean, I've heard people say that before. And at the time, an FM station, not that FM station you're thinking, uh, an FM station was aggressively pursuing us. Actually, a couple of them. Um to the point that I'm like, we're, we're gone. It's just a matter of which one. I remember talking with uh, Melissa Marr, who has worked with me since 2009 as the director of sales here at 590. Uh, and I was saying she knows everything that was going on, all the stations that were involved. And I said, yeah, it's just a matter of which one. At this point, it's like kind of being a recruit. It was a flattering position to be in. And uh, and I and at the time, just based on knowing who was where and thinking of what the dollars would be, uh, and knowing I'd no longer be cutting a big check, which was already a win, addition by subtraction, so to speak, or subtraction by addition, uh, going vice versa on it, the, the thought process was it was just a matter of time. Nothing against 920, but it's, we, we're going to have an option. And I would not have thought that 590 would be the one that would wind up happening just because I thought that... But uh, Randy did. He delivered on what he said. I'm going to make an offer you can't refuse. And he truly did. And one of the things that he did was, as has been documented publicly, uh, that I uh, received, I didn't buy uh, a, a percentage of ownership, not the majority, but a percentage of ownership in the business to come over here and bring all of, not just the infrastructure of what we had at 920, but really most importantly, the thing that I always go back to anytime I talk about this business is the advertising revenue. I mean, by giving me the contract Randy gave me, it's shrewd. Because he knows he's getting dollars, and he did, and that's smart. That's why he has been successful, uh, you know, in business, especially with what he built with Chuck's Boots. My God, but he has a number of other businesses. It's not just like there was one thing, and he's, he's an entrepreneur, and he thinks, and the Randy likes to do deals that work for both parties. And uh, that's why anytime Randy and I sit down to, together um, to talk, you know, we, you know, I almost, I don't even know if there has been an exception. More often than not. Uh, we get it done. Um, so with that all said, uh, we got a deal done. And, um, at the time when we started, I was going to be the person operating it. Um, and it wasn't what I necessarily was hoping for long term, but I knew that that's what it had to be. And as we got going, uh, the way I would describe this, because I feel like Dan Caesar tried to portray it as something that it's not, especially when I know that Randy and I get together, you know, or are on the phone, get together a decent amount too, and we'll sit there and we'll laugh. But 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 if you put it out there publicly and portray it as something that's not, people will go, oh, you're lying because I read in the paper that you don't get along. And it's just not accurate. 
I think Randy would agree with this. Philosophically, we had different opinions of how to get into the end zone. You know, pre-whatever era of politics, I would say I'm a whatever, one side of the aisle and Randy's another side of the aisle. Not that I'm talking about actual political philosophies. I'm just talking about our philosophy to uh, to get in the end zone, so to speak, when it comes to radio. And me, operating from a short-stack poker standpoint, um, I always played it conservatively. And I saw what made us profitable at 920 was brokering time or rev shares. Randy, having a much bigger stack to be able to play with, wanted to get the best lineup possible. And I said, hey, that's great. Uh, and my God, I've never been able to do this because I don't have that kind of capital to operate from. Uh, but then that raises the expenses, and I know what we have done sales-wise, and I just want to make sure that we're profitable. And in Randy's mind, and this is just, this is, again, this is a philosophical difference. In Randy's mind, he believes that the best lineup is going to lead to more dollars, and I credit him for that. I wish I had that perspective, because that's why Randy's been incredibly successful. For me, I, I, I'm i three yards in a cloud of dust, you know, um, because... I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to take the chance of, 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 you know, especially when you know Randy was the majority, and Randy is the majority of the business. The last thing I want to do is run the business and then go. Oh, I'm losing now this much money. I don't want to do that. I want to run a profitable business for him. You know, so we had different philosophies, but that doesn't mean that we were at each other's throats. It's just not true. I mean, my God, I, you know, had. Uh, been on the phone with Randy over the last week so many times and then he's laughed. And even last week, almost a week to the day, I think it was a week to the day, actually. What was it? Oh, the billboards. You may have seen the billboards around town. And I have it in my contract. Uh, and, and really, it's almost more protective of Doug and the cat than, than me. But that just if somebody's going to put up a billboard or a marketing thing... Uh, that uh, it, we have to, I have to sign off on it, I guess. It's, I don't know, I'm paraphrasing whatever it is, so I'm not going into contract language. And a billboard went up, and Randy's like, I didn't realize, I, I, go, I apologize. I go, Randy, I said, it's just our names. I go, my God, that's a, and I go, I, the reason that's in there is because we had an ownership group years ago that like had us do weird poses, and we were all like, what are you doing? We're uncomfortable with this, but we had no protection, and then we're all on television at the time, and people are going, what in the hell are these guys doing? You know, it's like what the cat says. Like, one guy has a guy in a, you know, stranglehold, and the other guy's like acting like he's about to pull a grenade, and it's up on billboards all over the, all over time, you know, that kind of shit. And so that's the only reason that's in there. And I said, yeah, and I'm explaining to Randy, he goes, oh, yeah, like the picture of y you and me uh, that's in the paper all the time. I go, yeah, like where it looks like we just got done robbing a bank. And he was laughing his ass off. He goes, but I just love, you're one of my favorite people. I go, I really enjoy BSing with you. I just like the guy. You can, like Doug and I, for example. Obviously, I like Doug. Doug and I, from a, again, now we're going into actual politics. Uh, you can have a different philosophy or a worldview and still really like somebody. And so that was the scenario um, regarding, you know, the first few months of KFNS in 2016. And then on December 27th, 2016, maybe it was December 26th. I really should know this. But either way, I know it was within a day or two after Christmas of 2016. Stunningly, after we had been told months earlier that we could not have children uh, and had to start looking at either the adoption route or the surrogate route, whatever the case might be, uh, Anna Marie tells me she's pregnant. So at that point, I'm like, 
this, for as big as this has gotten, and by that I mean, you know, the the talent that have been brought in, whereas I was looking to just broker the time or do rev share deals, and Randy was going out and wanting to hire like a talent like Martin Kilcoin, for example, who's a super talented guy. Uh, I said, Randy, you really need a person who is in there from, you know, 7 or 8 a.m. until whatever it takes to run this thing and to have me come in at 1030 when I'm off the air after having done a show, it's a, it's it's just I'm not I'm not the guy. You need somebody in there to make sure you're optimizing the dollars you're investing in this business. That's just that's just reality. Uh, it's otherwise it's it's just not going to work. And then furthermore, as some of you may remember, and plenty of you don't, uh, that first week of January, and Anna Marie and I experienced. Uh, we did IVF twice, no success. For those of you who've done it, you're aware of how expensive it is, but you have no idea how expensive it is until it doesn't work, and then your your wife is emotionally distraught. So you have that element. We had miscarriages, uh, and Anna Marie thought she lost the baby over that weekend. And, you know, I mean, just just devastating. Just one of the darkest times of my life, and certainly hers, and I remember her parents, and just everybody just, just so heartbroken. And then we go to the the doctor on that Monday. I think this is around like January 8th or 9th of 2017. And uh, stunningly, uh, who is now our son, Jameson, was still alive. Um, the baby was still there. There was a heartbeat and um, she, it was blood clots that made her think she lost the baby. If I'm getting too graphic, I apologize, but I'm just telling you the story. And so after that had happened and, after, and knowing how close we had become before to being parents and it not happening and that happening, just like, I cannot, I cannot be there for my wife. I'm already 40. I don't know if we'll ever have this shot again. I've got to be there. I've got to minimize the stress in my life. I, I can't be. And on top of it, even if this weren't going on, somebody needs to be running this radio station. Um, and it should not be me. And that is how it all came to pass. So um, I'm glad I get a chance to talk about it because this is what happened. Um, but I think when changes are made, people just assume, oh, there must have been something there. Well, that's what that's what it was. You know, it was a combination of uh, the pregnancy and just going, wow, this is this is this is now much bigger than what I was doing at 920. I could handle doing what I was doing at 920 and I could have done that. But Randy wanted to do something much bigger and God bless him and good for him. Um, but at that point, then you, in my opinion, need somebody who's going to be in there five days a week and working, you know, whatever it is, uh, 60 hours uh, to run it in order to make sure that this gentleman who has put in this money um, profits. You know, and I was not that guy at that point because I'm you know, doing a show until 10 o'clock and now I've got a wife who, you know, I mean, at that point after the near miscarriage again, if something would have happened, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I know we would have gone on, of course, because you just do out of necessity, but um, it, it, I don't know. It would have, the world would have been different if we would have lost the baby. And uh, I could not, especially knowing how stressed I get, and this goes back, you know, way more than, uh, you know, it's a long time uh, into the 2005s and 6s. So, you know, well before now that it impacts the people I'm with. Uh, I couldn't be bringing that home and stressing my wife out. Couldn't do it. 
Uh, and so that's 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 it. Um, you might be a hell of a lot more than you were asking for, but now it's always there. Now people will always go, okay, well, you know, well, if you're curious about it, here is here is the explanation. Uh, let's see. Are there any particular golf holes that you always seem to struggle with way more than you should? For me, it is 17 at Triple Lakes. Ah, yes. Uh, not a super easy hole, but a fairly straightforward 160-yard par 3 that I always seem to turn into a cluster. Usually lucky to escape with a double. Again, I really enjoy this question. Now, this is a question that's going to appeal to like 1% of the people listening, but I like the question. The answer is... it's it's it, The answer is absolutely yes, and there's a, there's a constant for each one of these holes um if there is trouble on the left on the near left and then the hole's shape is right to left i.e the pin is going to be to the left of the tee box or you're gonna have to navigate a right to left for me at this moment now i'm in the proper i'm in the process of totally redoing my, my swing and I'm getting lessons right now. And I'm probably going to go into detail on that with the person I'm getting lessons from because this guy's incredible and I'm already seeing differences and I can't get enough of going to the range to hit balls because I love it, but it's a process and, you know, I'm totally rebuilding my swing. Um, but if it's right to left and trouble right there on the left, so you can't like hang it out and then have it cut back as I do, uh, that's death for me. And so, for those of you who may have listened to my recap of uh, playing Bell Reeve the day after the PGA Championship and coming to the tee box and only needing a double bogey on number nine, we started on number 10, so number nine was 18 for us, um, and only needing a double bogey, which at that point should have been not even close to a sweat, and I would have finished with an 89. Hell, I, I, I part, and I shoot 87, playing from the tips at Bell Reeve, the exact tees the boys had played from the day before. Um Number nine at Bell Reeve, where Tiger had his famous escape and then birdie on Sunday, uh, is that exact, exact layout. A much smaller version of that hole is number 17 at Westboro. Um, and, you know, that, that's a hole that for, you know, some guys at Westboro, they can drive it, although I'm sure some of them can if the conditions are, are, are right. And, um, but you certainly can get within, you know, some of the great guys who can bomb it or, you know, within 20 yards easily. Uh, that's not something you can do at number nine at Belt Reeve, especially from the tips. But I yank my drive because um, it's mental. The reason why you're having problems with, and I, I've played Triple Lakes. It was probably next to Ruth Park, and I'm not saying this flippantly. It really was the course that I grew up on, even though I grew up in South City and we would drive to Columbia, Illinois, where Triple Lakes is. I don't remember what number 17 is at Triple Lakes. If it's a 160-yard par 3, there can't be that much to it unless it's like sawgrass. Um, so it's mental. It's a mental thing. There's not a doubt in my mind it's a mental thing that leads to just the slightest thing with your swing. And then it leads to a debacle of a tee shot, which then compounds itself into something that can be a triple or quadruple bogey. Um, you know, I mean, how often do you hit the ball left? For example, I'm kind of talking to myself here. Oh, but now there's a bunch of trouble on the left, and suddenly I've just hit my ball left like there's a magnet there. It's a mental thing. I mean, it's, and that's what you got to get past. But first, I think you get the mechanics, and then once you get the mechanics, then the mindset is proper to just, you know, duplicate the mechanics. You know, when I play, like Skip Berkmeyer, who's a guy I want to have on the podcast, and is a guy I've gotten a chance to play with here a couple times over the last three weeks. Um, you know, and he when we played at Westboro two weeks ago, he shot sixty 
65, 64, 65. And if you would have asked me when we got done playing what he shot, I would have gone, I don't know, right around even, 68. And it was just like he was three under and he hit 17 of 18 greens regulation. It was just like, it was just like, it was mechanical. It was, you know, he's on in regulation. He's going to have a birdie putt. He's going to hit 30% of them maybe, depending on the proximity of the pin. But it's just, they take trouble out of play and it just drives down the middle, hitting the green, giving the putt a good chance and then not leaving too much for the second putt if you don't hit it. I mean, it's that's what they do. It's like if you listen to the Mulder interview here and he said, you just don't get it until you play with these guys. And, and Skip Berkmeyer would go, yeah, there's me. And then there's, because we did talk about it after we had fun playing, we were BSing. You know, he's like, you know, for as good as, as I may appear to be to you, he's saying this to me, uh, he goes, it's just a different, he goes, these guys are so good. They are so good. And people just don't realize how good they are. And I'm going, you just hit 17 of 18 greens. They only could be one green better. Uh, you know, I mean, but it's a, it's a different, it's a different world. Um, the ability that that's out there, but the, 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 so much of that I think is is mental, which is why I think there are certain players who I just don't know if they're ever going to win. I think there's something to that, or it's going to take some time. I swear to you, if Justin Rose hits his putt on that playoff hole against Sergio Garcia, he doesn't make his putt. I really believe that. This is an obscure 2017 Masters reset, but hey, because I, I, I just I think Sergio is one of those people. Young Sergio might have been, but then I think he got mental, and then it started messing with him when he had you know clutch opportunities. See the what was it 07, 08 Open. Uh, so that's something that guys then once they get the physical part down, the mechanics of the swing, then I think they coach themselves on breathing and repetition. And that's where it separates the men's from the boys. But what it really gets down to, I think is putting. That's what, that's what separates the great from the, the guys who are out on tour. Uh, let's see. All right. We've finally gotten a sexual question. I'm surprised. I've been asking for them, uh, cause I'm happy to take the podcast in a creepy direction. So thank you, Bobby. Thank you for the creepy question. What is your craziest random hookup story? Um, for a one-on-one, uh, I think it was my first weekend at the University of Missouri. And I got to be honest with you. Uh, I think there are a lot of misperceptions about, um, like I'm telling you, if I'm in St. Louis and, and we're out past 10 o'clock, at this point, something must be going on. Uh, it just isn't the way that we live anymore. Um, it really hasn't been the way we lived for a good amount of time, but certainly recently, even before Jameson was born. Um, and there might be a misperception of what my college experience was like. It was it was socially dreadful, uh, and and it probably the reason why. I, now at forty one years old, I'm, I'm I have the the mindset of a, a twenty one year old still. Um, because it just, it, there wasn't a whole lot doing. There just wasn't a whole lot doing. Um, and by that, I mean, it was, it was very dry. So, and, as was high school. I mean, it's, 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 it, was, it was a mess. And I don't know what that was about. I just know that that's what it was. So, you get down to Columbia, Missouri. You know, I could take or leave the fraternity thing. If anything, I'd probably leave it. Um, but at that time, and maybe it's still going on now, I have no idea. Uh the Sigma Chi house at the University of Missouri was one of the, a handful of fraternities that for whatever reason, I have, I have no idea why, I guess the, the, the ability to, you know, rage as far as booze goes and whatever else was going on. 
uh, was the, one of the places that would wind up having, you know, some of the more, you know, attractive and um, uh, free, I think would be a good way to describe it, uh, ladies coming by. And so here I am, just, you know, loser for my money. Um, and, you know, like I said, college or high school, nothing doing. I mean, when you go to St. Louis U High, and then you're hanging out with people who live in, you know, the Central Corridor or West County, but you're from South City, and you're either driving around your mom's minivan or your buddy who goes to Viani's beat-up 85 Cavalier, and he's got a subwoofer in it because he wants people to hear his beats. That does not appeal to the Villa Girls, the St. Joe Girls. It's, it's just not real attractive. And then when you're under 5'5", five, five, that also isn't an aphrodisiac. So it was a very dry four years. So getting to Columbia, Missouri, it turns out, you know, the Sigma Chi house is an aphrodisiac. And it's like, we just want to hook up with a Sigma Chi. It's a very weird thing. I hope that it's still not going on. I don't know if it is. It's odd to me. But it, it was going on in 1994. I can tell you that. And I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dying of thirst so I will drink anything. And there was a, and I'm, I'm just, I know it's other thing that was metaphorical, but it's also uh, literal in the sense that there's, I'm, I'm destroyed. And I really didn't drink much in high school at all. Uh, I really didn't. I, I know that might sound weird. Like my wife like laughs at me about it. I'm like, well, what? I was responsible, you know, but I, mean, I really didn't. Uh, I would put Kool-Aid in 40 ounce bottles. I'm not making this up. I would put Kool-Aid in 40-ounce bottles, and I would drink that. I mean, that's why I say you're, you're like, oh, you're being self-deprecating. No, I'm a fucking loser. And so now I'm drinking, and now I'm at this place where women actually want to be, and just because I'm a Sigma Chi, they will talk with me, whereas if I weren't, they wouldn't. And so now you're actually in a position to actually do something. And so, but I'm drunk, and there was a girl from West Virginia. So already you got a, you know, you got about a 30 foot putt here at this point. There's a girl from West Virginia. And as I remember, uh, she was wearing like a sleeveless getup. And I'm not talking about, oh, like a nice little sleeveless blouse or whatever the hell you would call. It. I'm talking about like a sleeveless thing you would see like on like somebody riding on the back of a, a bike. But I just remember she was blonde and in decent shape. And, and I'm in no position to be, you know, a real particular and I'm intoxicated. So fortunately I can't remember at this point, 24 years later, what she looked like, but I do remember I'm in my frat dorm room. Uh, this, these are, this is the grace period where you get to school, but you know, your pledge ship hasn't begun. So you don't know what's waiting for you around the corner, which is a delight. And you think you got the world by the balls and I'm sitting in there with this girl, obvious, you know, you did the, hey, would you like to see a tour of the house? That's all I got. That's, that's, that's as good as I got. And she does. And so I give her the tour, and then we go up to this, you know, 200-square-foot bedroom, luxurious, which I'm sharing with, you know, two roommates. And she is so revolting that people are coming by the room to look at her as if I'm, I'm about to hook up with the elephant man. And I'm looking at them as they're like laughing and they can't, they can't stand up. They're laughing so hard. And I'm like, yeah, look at me. I'm fucking balling, you know? And meanwhile, they're laughing and I have no idea what they're laughing about. And they and, and I think somebody's like screaming out and down the hallway, don't do it. Don't do it. But in my mind, I'm like, I, 
this is great because it just hasn't been happening all that much. And I'm going to take what I can get. And, and, the, and the, the thing that, that really drives home how horrid it was, and I really don't remember, I really don't, I wonder if I blocked this out now because I'm trying to recall it. I can picture the room and I can picture the people laughing. I can picture actually, I can name the gentlemen who were laughing. <clears throat> the thing that made it all the more horrific was that her name was Elliot. Her name was Elliot. I still haven't met a woman since. Her name was Elliot. Name was Elliot. And so it was so bad that for the remaining um, uh, four or five months of our pledgeship, there was an award given every Sunday night at our pledge meeting for whoever hooked up with the worst of the worst over the weekend. It was passed around like the Stanley Cup. Who got the Elliott Award? I hope maybe they're still doing it 24 years later, and there are guys who weren't even born who are, who are now recipients of the Elliott Award, and they have no idea. But if you have won it, no, it's because of that magical August evening in 1994 where I hooked up with a girl from West Virginia who apparently was so difficult that gentlemen went on to name an award from it. Uh, as far as uh, group situations, uh, the absolute best, uh, and I've been fortunate enough, and I really recommend it to everybody uh, to experience these. Uh, I don't know what year it was, but um, I'm at my place. We had been out. Uh, God, I would imagine it's two or three in the morning. Could be later. And my significant other at the time... I'm just sitting there, probably like playing video games. So again, the fucking loser thing, you know, carried on, uh, you know, well into the 2000s and I'm still carrying the flag now. My significant other at the time comes back to the place uh, where I live and she has brought with her two strippers. And I mean, just as, just as, just as, just as great of a gift as a gentleman could ever receive. Uh, for, for your sake, I hope you never were the recipient of the Elliott Award. And for your sake, I hope you experience the absolute joy that I did uh, that evening and morning. I, I don't know what, I don't know how it happened. I, but, but it's, it's like you get that and then the rest of your life, you're chasing it. It is, uh, it's as good as it gets. And I didn't expect it, so it made it even more lovely. So I will tell you my horror story. And as far as the question of the craziest random hookup story, uh, that would, that would, that would be it. And it was, it was uh, brilliant. My God, it was brilliant. And you know, it's unfortunate in a sense, because once you get, once you get that, it's like, ah, now nothing can ever live up to that. So, uh, there it is. Uh, let's see anything else, anything else. This is the Barnhart Brawler's question all the time. I don't, I feel like I'd like to have him in and discuss what he's trying to say. Cause I don't know what he's trying to say. Um, is shame dead? Is that a good or bad thing? And why? Uh, Barnup Raw are always into the shame thing. And I don't know what he means by it. So I'd rather like have a discussion. Um, I don't know. I mean, from my standpoint, group shaming has never been more popular than it is now. So therefore, I would say it's alive because of the social media mobs. Um, and I think he's making reference to 
President Trump, I think, because I know the Barnhart Brawler, and I know some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, so this is probably horrible, but uh, I, I'm trying to trace it. I'm trying to do some algebra on the question, but I don't want to ignore the question, like Adam's question of should I move to Normandy? I blew past that one, but uh, is, is shame dead? Is that a good or bad thing, and why? So I, to answer the question, I don't think it is, but I gather he thinks that it is, but I'd like to hear his reasoning and maybe his definition of shame and my definition of shame are two totally different things. Um, and that whole discussion for me, as I've said a few times, one of my favorite books, but it's like one of those books, like, you know, watch it, but it's like, do you really want to watch the movie? Cause you know, it's going to be so brutal is uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson, which details a bunch of people who have been publicly shamed now, just absolutely destroyed their lives. And also as somebody who's been on the receiving end of misinformation that was put out there and then was, I guess, I don't know if shamed would be the right word, but on the, on the receiving end of the Twitter pitchfork mafia, I am always one that is more apt to give the benefit of the doubt to the person on the re receiving end of the pitchfork mafia uh, because I've been there, even if maybe they do deserve it, but I've been there. Uh, so along those lines, uh, I certainly feel like shame is around and I don't know, I, I think it is a good thing if people aren't group thinking in general and that, but that it would include shame, group think in general, dogma in general. I'm anti that. But if you're pro critical thought, then I would imagine in line with that would be anti group think. Because a critical thought is going to arrive at a conclusion by one's own thought process with as much information presented as possible, i.e. the antithesis of dogma. So um, I think shame is alive and well, but perhaps the shame the Barnhart Brawler is referencing is different than the shame I'm thinking. When I think of shame, I think of people like ganging up on people, talking about how shitty of a person they are on social media by being 10 times a shittier person than the person they're accusing of being a shitty person, which to me is like the most fucked up thing going on right now. But that's what I picture. And I would love it if that were dead. But I know if anything, it's thriving. It's like a beast that continues to be fed every week, you know, um, so from that standpoint, I think that's alive and well, but perhaps he's making reference to something else. I would imagine it's political, but hell, if the Barnard Brawler wants to come on here and, and have that discussion, uh, I'm all for having it because it's certainly something that's near and dear to his heart. Okay. I don't, I, all I know is this, I started talking at 7am and it's now 108. And when you combine the morning after you combine my interview with Greg Amsinger and however long I've gone here with questions from the audience, I've been doing a lot of talking. I hope that the content was entertaining. If it wasn't, uh, I apologize, but you lasted this long. So uh, God bless. Maybe your phone was far away and you just couldn't turn it off. Uh, thank you to Ryan Kelly, the home loan expert.com for his sponsorship of the studios. Thank you to Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies for uh, his sponsorship of the program. And thank you to James Carlton of Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency in Webster Groves. Just had lunch with James and I'm having lunch with James yesterday, as a matter of fact. And we're just BS and we get together once a month. And my wife sends me a picture of her car and has a big flat tire thing explode. And, uh, and I go, oh man, he goes, hey, if you got to go, you got to go. And I'm like, oh, I, I got to go. I got to go because she's got Jameson with her. And she goes, but make sure that she calls roadside assistance on the back of the car. And I'm like, oh yeah, of course. Why not text her? And then sure enough, they're there. And that's the thing. I happen to be sitting with James 
whose number is 314-961-4800 and online at carltoninsurance.net. But if I wouldn't have been sitting with James, I think I would have gotten the answer just as fast. And we were talking about that when we were at lunch. It's just, he does something that to me is kind of like basic and obvious, but because it's not basic in 2018, it stands out and that is gets back to people. And then it's like, wow, this guy's great. And I guess he is, but maybe 30 years ago, people are like, yeah, James Carlton returns your call. But James Carlton returns your call, he returns your text, he returns your email. And that's the customer service that makes him stand out from everybody else. And I really, in a monster way, cannot emphasize this enough. Do business with James Carlton. Carltoninsurance.net online is where you'll find him there or call him at 314-961-4800. He's a State Farm insurance agent and he's got a great thing going because he gets it, he knows his industry and his customer service is truly second to none. That's why he hires the staff that he does. And of course, Johnny Landoff Chevrolet. I got a Johnny Landoff story because my wife's tire is blown out. So sure enough, I text Sam Landoff. And I said, hey, Sam, here's a picture of Anna Marie's tire. What's our play? And he's like, we're on it. Let me know where to pick up the car. We'll come and get it. We'll take it. I'm just like, my God, what in the boy? You know, they're selling cars out there. Landoff Chevrolet's business doesn't revolve around my wife's car's tire. But that's, you know, that's that's a credit to, to John, the father of Sam and John and the whole group of Landoffs uh, because he raised them right. They run it. Great business. And when you're there, you really do feel like, even though it's 2018, you're at a family business. And you are. That's why it's got the name on the dealership. Uh, if you are in the market to buy a car, need to get a car fixed, need a pre-owned car, it's Johnny Landoff Chevrolet at uh, I-270 and the Washington Elizabeth exit or online at Landoff.com. Chevy, find new roads. Ryan Kelly, Mark Hanna, James Carlton. Johnny Landoff, and then Seth Goldcamp of Design Air Heating and Cooling. They make the whole thing possible. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly did a lot of babbling. I hope you got some value out of it. Maybe the Elliott thing was the payoff. I don't know. Uh, but there it is. Another edition of questions from the audience is in the books. Thank you for your questions. Don't hesitate to send them. I enjoy them. Like I said, you can ask anything. Who would have thought we would get into the Elliott thing? But you ask the question, now you get the answer. Uh, email me anytime. Team McKernan at InsideSTL.com. Thank you for listening to The Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios.